What we're going to do this morning together is we're going to take a look uh, at Acts chapter 2. And before I read uh, 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 several sort of segments from that chapter, I just want to give you a little bit of a background before we dive in, since we are just kind of jumping in. So leading up to Acts chapter 2, here's some of the recent events that have happened in the life of these individuals that we're going to read about who are known as the disciples, uh, those, who, those 12 who followed Jesus um, while he was here uh, on earth. What has happened is Jesus has actually gone to the cross. He's been crucified and he is actually raised from the dead. He has actually been resurrected. And what he's been doing is he's been hanging out with his disciples um, uh, amongst many others as well too. And he's been teaching them and telling them about what life is going to look like moving forward and telling them that he's actually going to go and he's going to ascend into the heavens and sit at the right hand of God the Father. And so in Acts chapter 1, that's what happens. Jesus comes to the disciples and he tells them that they need to go back to Jerusalem and they need to wait, they need to pray, and that they're going to receive uh, the Holy Spirit. Um, And so that's what we actually walk into into Acts chapter 2. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read verses 1 through 4, verses 22 to 24, and this, then verses 42 uh, to 47. And then we'll kind of dig in and uh, dive into this passage. But this is God's word uh, for us this morning, Deer Creek. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Skipping down to verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then skipping down to verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions, uh, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray together and ask God to help us understand his word this morning. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we come to you this morning and we plead all we have is Christ. And you, Father, have given us your one and only son, Jesus. And so we pray this morning that as we come to your word, that we would, we would, we would understand and feel and take in more and more deeply the reality that all we have is Jesus Holy Spirit, would you shape us through your word this morning? And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start this morning by kind of uh, taking things up to about 30,000 feet for us. Um, So a big overview. And I want to kind of engage 
uh, this idea of making sense of the world that we live in. You see, we're all trying to make sense of the world that we live in. It's something that is innate to us as human beings. As a matter of fact, that's one of the very first things that infants do. They try to make sense of the world that's around them. They try to figure out, well, who's mom and who's dad? And if you've been around infants and you know that you hold one and you grab one and an infant looks at you and realizes you're not mom and dad, that they don't want to be around you, right? Like they are making sense of their world. We all do this on a daily basis. We do this as we drive. We do this when we go to the grocery store. And I don't know about you, but I'm always looking up at the signs to figure out where it is that I'm at and what I need. So at a basic level, we're always trying to make sense of the world, but this actually leads to these larger looming questions that we have about the world and our place in it of like, well, what am I here for? What's the purpose of humanity? How do I make sense of all of these big things like a pandemic happening in our world? And what I want to do is I want to read to you a number of quotes from modern day um, people of how they are trying to make sense of the world uh, that we live in. This first one is from uh, entertainer, artist Justin Bieber. He says, the success I've received comes from God. He's trying to make sense of why it is that he's so successful at what he does. The success I've received comes uh, from God. Another entertainer, Kanye West. He says this, we came into a broken world and we're the cleanup crew. Interesting. Uh, Noted author Christopher Hitchens, who passed away just a few years ago, and also a very outspoken atheist, someone who says they don't even believe in God. This is what he has to say about fatherhood. To be the father of growing daughters is nothing can make one so happily exhilarated or so frightened. It's a solid lesson in the limitations of self to realize that your heart is running around inside someone else's body. Martin Luther King Jr. said this, an individual has not started living until he can rise above the narrow confines of his individualistic concerns to the broader concerns of all humanity. And then American author who actually took his own life a number of years ago, David Foster Wallace said this, We're all lonely for something we don't know we're lonely for. How else to explain the curious feeling that goes around feeling like missing somebody we've never even met? We're all trying to make sense of the world around us. What about you? How are you trying to make sense of the world that you're living in and your place in it? How are we doing that? You see, what I hear in each of these quotes and what goes on in each of us that's underneath and at this gut level for us is that we all have this sense that there's something more going on, that there's something bigger than just me, something bigger than self. There's actually something that is transcendent, something that is outside of everything. And what I want us to see this morning in Acts chapter 2 is that Acts chapter 2 answers this question of the more. It answers the question of the more by telling us that God is doing more. And actually that God has done and is doing something supernatural that makes sense of our world and our place in it. And what that does is that leads to a natural and ordinary 
life. So if you're a note taker this morning, my two points are supernatural and natural, ordinary life. So let's dive into this supernatural work that God is doing. We really see this in the first 41 verses of Acts chapter 2. And we won't be able to tap into everything, but let's get ourselves into this story. Because here's what's happened. The disciples of Jesus, they've been following around after his resurrection. Jesus has told them to go back to Jerusalem. He ascends to the right hand of the Father, and they do. They go back to Jerusalem, and they are holed up inside of this house. And what are they doing? They're doing what Jesus told them to do. They're waiting. They're praying. They're waiting to receive. And then in verse 2, we see that this mighty rushing wind enters into the house where they are at. And in verse 3, we see that there's like this image, like tongues of fire on each of these individuals that are there. And verse 4 tells us that they are filled with the Holy Spirit, just as Jesus promised them that they would be, that he would send the Holy Spirit. And then what happens is they begin to speak in tongues. They begin to speak in different languages that are not their own native language. And it seems like this event is, is drawing quite a bit of attention because what happens is this conversation that's sort of happening inside of this building, it begins to spill over into the streets in such a way that there are people who are walking around, they hear this going on, and they actually are hearing them speak in these different languages, languages that are not even necessarily their own, and they're understanding what it is that they are saying. And verse 6 tells us that those people, these masses that are gathering around, they become bewildered. Another word that we might use for that is confused. <laughs> they are confused. What is going on? I'm hearing these people speak in my language and I'm understanding it, but they don't normally speak in my language. And so they marvel at it. And they're deeply confused. And what they try to do is they try to make sense of what's happening around them. And so the way that they make sense of what's happening around them, at least some of them say, I know what it is. They've been drinking. They, they started drinking early this morning. That's what's going on. They're drunk. That's what's happening here. Have you ever been confused? <laughs> have, you, have you ever tried to make sense of something that's happening around you and you have a hard time doing that? If you've ever been in, uh, in a car accident, this happens at a real like gut level. Like you, you, get, you get hit and you have no idea what has just happened. And you find yourself trying to make sense of what's going on, but you're also deeply, deeply confused. You see, we all know what it's like to try and make sense of our reality of what's happening around us. We're actually no different than these people in the first century here. We can identify with them. Well, what happens is these masses, they start to gather around. And then one of Jesus's followers, a man named Peter, he steps in to say, here, let me make sense of what's happening here. Look at verses 14 and 15 if you have your Bibles with you. Peter says, he's standing there with the other 11. He lifts up his voice and he addressed these masses that are there. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. These people are not drunk as you suppose since it's only the third hour of the day. Peter says way too early. Way too early for them to be drunk. That's not what is going on. But then, then Peter locks in. 
And he says, let me make sense of this for you. Let me make sense of what's happening for you. And what he does is he connects these events of what are happening to these ancient texts in the Old Testament. From Joel chapter 2. In Joel chapter 2, the prophet Joel, hundreds of years before this happened, predicted that this whole event would happen and that the Holy Spirit would be poured out and the people of God would be filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter also connects what is happening with Psalm 16 and Psalm 110, which are psalms that directly connect us to Jesus and who he is and what he has done in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. You see, what Peter does is he blows up the picture, right? He gets to the big picture, and then what he does is he clarifies what is happening. Peter brings crystal clear focus into what is happening here. It's a lot like many of you will remember this. I remember this. Do you remember overheads in your elementary school classrooms? You know, the teacher would put, it would put the, 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 whatever it is that's on there, and then they would have to focus it. Today, you've got, you've got a phone that does all kinds of different things. You know, if you go to portrait mode, portrait mode will, will bring crystal clear focus to the picture that you're trying to take. Well, Peter brings crystal clear focus into what is happening here. And it's culminated and its summary is found in verses 22 to 24, which we read. But I want to read for us again because I want us to take this in, what Peter is saying here. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Peter says to these masses, everything that's happening here, everything that you're experiencing, everything that you're seeing, let me bring crystal clear focus to it. It is all about Jesus It is all about Jesus' life, his death on the cross for you, and his resurrection because death could not hold him down. You see, the point of this passage is not about some ecstatic experience that these people are having. It's not even about the fact that they're hearing stuff that is not in their own language, but understanding it. It is not about an ecstatic experience, but it is about a historical reality. The historical reality that Jesus, God himself, has come in the flesh and become man and has lived a life without sin and has gone to the cross for you and for me and death could not hold him down. It is about a historical reality that you know what? Kanye West is at least half right. We live in a broken world. And you know what? You and I contribute to that brokenness. The Bible calls that sin. We live in a broken world and we are sinful and Jesus supernaturally invades and enters in and comes and does something about it. He dies the death that you and I should have died. He lives the life that you and I should have lived and death couldn't hold him down. He's raised from the dead. You see, our sense of more that we have deep down inside of us 
It's seen right here in Acts chapter 2. Jesus is more. Jesus has done the supernatural work of dying on the cross and being raised from the dead. Peter is telling these masses, and he's telling you and me here this morning, Jesus is the more that our hearts deep down feel exists. Jesus is transcendent. Because verse 24 is true. Death could not hold him down. The transcendent has invaded into our broken world and turned death and brokenness and our sin into resurrection and life. And this is all gift. It's all because God loves us. It's all because of God's grace. We receive this at no cost to us. God willingly and lovingly gives it to us. You see, death is real for every single one of us. Every one of us in this room, nobody escapes it. And some people say, and maybe you might even say, well, yeah, we live and we die and that's kind of the end of it. But if so, why is death so painful? Why does it hurt so bad when we lose loved ones? Why do we fight it tooth and nail? Why do we have industries that make billions and billions of dollars to push back death? Why do we wish that it was different? It's because we were made for life. We were made for life. Throughout the millennia, all kinds of people in all kinds of academic disciplines from Plato to modern day uh, philosophers have asked the question, what is humanity for? What is our purpose? What are we made for? And they all agree on this one thing. We are made for life. <laughs> we are made to live. That's why death is so painful. That's why we fight for things to be better. That's why we try to fix the brokenness in our world. That's why we try to make things right. Back to Kanye. Came into a broken world and we're the cleanup crew. We feel the weight of that. We feel like that's something that we should be doing. But here's the problem with all of these paradigms. All of these paradigms don't account for the biggest problem. Us, you and me. You see, we try to fix humanity with humanity. And we can't fix humanity with the problem. We've never attained it because ultimately you can't fix the biggest problem in the world of sin and brokenness with the problem itself. We need something outside of self. We need something bigger. In 2010, there was a documentary that was made that was uh, taking a deep dive look at the public education system in America. The name of this documentary is called Waiting for Superman. And in Waiting for Superman, they interview a, a man who is a, an educational reformer, a man named Jeffrey Canada. And Jeffrey grew up in a situation that was fairly destitute and impoverished, and he found himself as a kid coming across comic books. And his favorite comic book was Superman. Some of you might be familiar with Superman. I would imagine most of us actually are. 
And he said the worst day of his life is when he was in fourth grade and he was reading a Superman comic book and his mom looked at him and said, Jeffrey, you know Superman's not real. Like Superman is, is not real. He's not coming. And he said, he said, and that was devastating to me. And not from the sense of like Superman's like Santa Claus. But he said, if Superman's not real, then who is going to come and save us? Who is going to come and save us from the destitution that we are in and the brokenness that we exist in? Friends, Jesus is no Superman. But Jesus is God himself in the flesh who has come to save us from the brokenness of the world and our own sin, our own contributions to it. And I would wager to each one of you that Christianity offers the best resources for human frailty, for sin, for death, for brokenness. It offers a Savior, Jesus, the one who has undone sin and death through his death on the cross and his resurrection. Death could not hold him down. The supernatural God becomes man in Jesus and invades our world and our hearts and reverses sin and death and he gives life and he gives flourishing. Jesus is the more that our hearts are looking for and it is rooted in a historical reality. And here's what's true is if Jesus is true and what he has done is true, then that actually alleviates the pressure that we feel to be transcendent. It alleviates the weight that we feel to fix everything around us because we're not made for it. We can't absorb that. Only Jesus can. Jesus is the one who is made for it. In his supernatural work, it makes sense of the world that we live in and our place in it. And then the second thing that I want us to see this morning is it actually leads to a natural, ordinary life. We see that in verses 42 to 47. And I'm going to read verse 46 to us because I think verse 46 encapsulates what this ordinary life looks like. You see all these people that have gathered together and they've heard this message that Peter is preaching of Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. They respond and they believe and God adds to their number. There's thousands of people who are coming into the church. And then what do they do? They start gathering together as a community and they start doing stuff. And here's what, here, here is what Peter, here's actually what Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, has to say about this group of people in verse 46. Day by day, they attended the temple together. They broke bread in their homes and they received their food with glad and generous hearts. You want to know what an ordinary life looks like? It looks like becoming a people with glad and generous hearts. Jesus alleviates the pressure of being the transcendent and he frees us to an ordinary life. And he turns us into glad and generous hearted people. Well, how does he do that? What does that look like? Verse 42 actually spells this out for us. He says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So I want to spend a few moments kind of hovering over each of those things. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. You see, 
devoting ourselves to this teaching, to this truth about who Jesus is and what he's done is the ordinary response to this supernatural historical reality of Jesus undoing sin and death. That this truth would be the thing that would shape us in every conceivable way, in any way that you can think. That Jesus would actually have the authority to define what our lives look like. That Jesus has the authority to define what flourishing is, what life is. Jesus has the authority to define what destruction is, what sin is, what right is, what wrong is. Jesus has the authority to speak into how we think about our work. Jesus has the authority to speak into how we think about our marriages And we just spent time thinking about marriages. That means that Jesus has the authority to tell us we're supposed to be dying to ourselves, laying down our lives for our spouses. Jesus has the authority to speak into how we parent our children, and he pushes us towards grace, that we would push our children to interact with the reality of their own brokenness and their own sin, their own need for Jesus, and that we would do it in a gentle and in a loving way, not in a way to berate them or beat them over the head with it. That Jesus actually has the authority to inform our hobbies. Jesus has the authority to speak into how we think about our resources and our money. Jesus has the authority to speak into everything in our lives in any and every conceivable way. There is not one square inch where Jesus doesn't belong. Jesus belongs everywhere in your life and in my life. And what this means is that we should be and should be growing as a people who are open-handed. That we come to Jesus with open hands, expecting him to show us our sin and our brokenness and our need for what he has done in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. That we would expect that Jesus is going to change us and he's going to grow us and he's going to make us more and more filled with his grace that he's going to grow us to want to and to desire to submit everything to him in every part of our life and that he will break us down with grace to come to grips with our own sin and brokenness and our need for what he has done over and over and over again. So they committed themselves to the apostles' teaching. They also committed themselves to this thing called prayer. And prayer is really just the ordinary response of God pursuing us in his grace. Of God speaking Jesus undoing sin and death into our hearts. And here's the thing. Prayer is actually really simple. Because what prayer is, is it's, it's talking with God. I guess it's really that simple. Young, young people in here, it really is that simple. It's talking to God. So prayer's really simple, but let me also tell you this. Prayer's also really risky. Because prayer is admitting that you can't do it on your own. Prayer is owning up to the reality that we need someone, something from outside of ourselves to get into us, to grow us, and to change us. Prayer is risky because it is admitting that we are the problem that needs to be fixed. That we can't do life without Jesus. Prayer is not an escape. 
Prayer's not on a wing in a prayer. Prayer's not even our thoughts and prayers are with you, though it is that. Prayer's not a moment of silence. Prayer is an engaging and interacting with the maker of heaven and earth who has entered in to your life and mine and given himself for us. It's really simple, but it's also really risky. They committed themselves to the apostles' teaching. They committed themselves to prayer. They also committed themselves to fellowship. You see, fellowship is the natural response of God in his grace calling us out of ourselves, out of our sin, and into Jesus and what he has done. That we would actually be called into this community that he calls his bride, the church. And that this community would be the place where we are shaped by the apostles' teaching, by prayer, by these things, that we would be shaped by Jesus and his church. And this means that we would be shaped by being known and loved in Jesus. In verses 44 through 45, we see what this takes shape and looks like, that we would, be, we would be shaped by this idea of Jesus sacrificing and giving himself for us, that we too would want to be sacrificial for one another. This fellowship is the kind of place where we care enough to see needs. It's the kind of place where we care enough that if we have need, we make those needs known. And it's the kind of place where we care enough to meet the needs that each and every one of us has to provide for one another. Realizing and coming to grips with everything that we have comes from God. Everything that we have comes from God. And so what God does is he grows in us this shared desire to spread his gracious provision to one another. And even outside the doors of, these, of this church. You see, fellowship is a place that speaks truth. It confesses sin, receives assurance, shows grace, builds one another up in love. This fellowship, this fellowship that Luke writes about here is safe. It's present. It's real. It's the place where we give ourselves to each other in the way that Jesus gave himself to each and every one of us. It's a place where being broken and sinful is not shunned and put outside, but invited in and invited into the loving, gracious arms of the bride of Christ because of what Jesus has done for you and for me. The ordinary life is a life committed to the apostles' teaching, to prayer, to fellowship, and to breaking bread. You see, breaking bread is the ordinary response to Jesus who called himself the bread of life. You see, breaking bread is this ordinary thing where we gather together in our families and with each other and we recognize that everything that we do, we do to God's glory, including taking in the nourishment that God has provided for us to prepare us for the life that he has put out in front of each and every one of us. And this breaking bread also leads to the meal that we take together at the table that Jesus sets for us. The meal that he has prepared for us. 
the one that is prepared by the supernatural undoer of sin and death. You see, the effect of these people committing themselves to the apostles' teaching, to prayer, to fellowship, to breaking bread, is that they are a people with glad and generous hearts because of what Jesus has done. The historical reality of his life, his death, and his resurrection. But if I'm honest with you guys, if I take a step back, if I take a step back and really try to be brutally honest, I struggle with every single one of these. I struggle to want a glad and generous heart. You know why? It's so much easier to be angry and frustrated. And look, make no mistake, everything around us that is, that is trying to inundate us wants us to be angry and frustrated. Everything around us wants us to be angry and frustrated, to lash out, to polarize, to put ourselves over here, to put ourselves over there, and to dismiss people over here, and to dismiss people over there. It's so much easier to be angry and frustrated than to be glad and generous. And let me give you a warning. If you find yourself in this camp, the camp that is called apathy, where you've moved beyond anger and frustration, that's a dangerous spot. That's a dangerous spot. Don't be apathetic. Come to Jesus. Come to the one who's given himself for you. Expect that he's going to work into you a glad and generous heart, and he's going to squelch out the anger and the frustration and the apathy. I struggle with the apostles' teaching. I don't want to submit. I don't, I don't want to submit the way that I, I, I think about my life to Jesus, if I'm honest. Because then that means that Jesus actually gets to tell me where I need to change, and I don't want to change. I think I'm pretty good. How many times do, do, do we think to ourselves, well, if everybody would just do it the way that I did, and then... Man, I feel that way. I don't want to submit. I don't want to submit the way I think about my resources and my money to Jesus. Prayer? Prayer is super risky. And I don't want to do it because it's admitting that I'm utterly dependent. That I can't just do it on my own. That it's not just about me pulling up my bootstraps and working harder and trying harder. Prayer is admitting that hard as I might try, it's never enough. I cannot get myself out of my sin and my brokenness. Jesus has to do that for me. Fellowship? Whew. You mean gathering together with people and having to be vulnerable and open up about these things? And deep down, I'm really afraid that if you really knew me, I'm not sure that you'd love me. Or at least I tell myself that. Not only do I not have confidence that Jesus is working in me, I don't have confidence that he's working in you. <laughs> to grow us together, to shape us by his grace, by the historical reality of what he has done. Breaking bread, I would prefer to just make that a check off of my list so that I can move on and focus on self, on my production I want to isolate because I'm afraid. I struggle to believe that grace is true. I struggle to believe that Jesus is shaping me in this community that he's called me into. But you know what? We need this so badly. 
so badly. We need community so badly because here's what's true. We, we, we are all... We are all made for life, which means that we're made to find meaning in this world and our purpose in it. It means that we are, we are made to, to exercise freedom and agency, but we're also made for this thing called community. And we're living in a culture that has a reservoir of overflowing freedom and trying to make meaning out of the things that I just want to do, but doing it without community, without the place that speaks into our lives and says, you know what? I'm not sure that that's really freedom over there. I'm not sure that the meaning that you're looking for is over there, but rather draws us in closely and closer and closer to Jesus and what he has done. We need community so bad. We need to be connected to each other so bad. Maybe you feel this way too. You see what Jesus is doing is he has undone sin and death and he's saying, fix your eyes on me. My supernatural work is what defines you, who you are. I make sense of the world and your place in it. And what Jesus is always doing, always doing, whether you're hearing this for the first time or the thousandth time, he is always inviting every single one of us here in this room into life and flourishing, into his life, his death, and his resurrection. A number of years ago, there was a professor at Oxford University in England. He was an English professor, and he wrote a series of children's novels uh, known as the Chronicles of Narnia. You might be familiar with them. Uh, the, the name of this man is C.S. Lewis. And in, uh, in one of those novels called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's two characters, well, there's many characters in it, but two sort of central characters that exist uh, in this novel. There's a character named Aslan who is a lion, and Aslan represents life and flourishing and good. And then there's a character that is this white witch, and she represents brokenness and sin and destruction. And these two characters are going to this place called a stone table to meet. And Aslan, as he is on his way to go to this stone table to meet with the white witch, there are two other characters, two little girls named Lucy and Susan, who are following Aslan. And they kind of walk behind him thinking, well, he's not going to notice us. But of course Aslan notices them. He notices them, he acknowledges them, he recognizes them, they walk with him for a bit. We don't know exactly what they talk about during that. But they walk for a bit together, and then Aslan gets to a point and he says, you need to stay here, and I need to go alone. And so Aslan walks up to the stone table where the white witch and all of her minions are, and Lucy and Susan stand back from afar. And what they watch happen, and what we get to see to happen is we read the book is that Aslan is sort of like captured by these minions and he's placed on this stone table and he's tied down and they rip out his mane and they rip out his hair and then ultimately they kill Aslan. And Lucy and Susan are distraught, as you can imagine. But as night passes on and they move into the next day, Lucy and Susan run up to the stone table to see if they could get Aslan. And when they get there, they find Aslan's not actually there on the stone table. And so they frantically began, began looking around for him to try and to find Aslan. And then 
Lucy turns around and she sees this giant lion with a full mane and the light behind him shining through. And Aslan is alive. And Lucy says, Aslan, I thought you were dead. He says, not now. She says, are you a ghost? And he says, do I look it? And then she bends down and she licks, or he bends down and licks her on her forehead. And Susan proclaims, you're really alive. And then they shower him with hugs and kisses. And then they follow Aslan. Death couldn't hold Aslan down. Friends, death could not hold Jesus down. He has supernaturally undone sin and death, and he invites you and me into life and flourishing, an ordinary life of following him as he shapes us as his people to be a people with glad and generous hearts. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given us Jesus. Jesus, you are our only hope in life and death as we have all